Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Dr. Enrique Sala, Nat Geo's explorer in residence, the founder of Pristine Seas, and author of upcoming book, The Nature of Nature. Unlike previous episodes, we're not going to explore a specific problem and how it's being solved. Instead, this conversation is much more holistic in nature, because Dr. Salah's work spans many, many years, from academia where he researched ocean health over 100 plus years, and then transitioning into industry where his work at Pristine Seas has helped protect more than 5 million square kilometers of ocean and created 22 marine reserves around the world. And in the episode, we'll explore how the health of the planet actually relates to the health of humanity. We'll dive into the big offenders in the destruction of the world and how exactly we can solve those things across industry and policy. We'll connect the dots between seemingly unrelated things like how garbage in the adamant sea affects a family in Minnesota. And lastly, we'll explore his upcoming book, The Nature of Nature, and what he hopes the biggest takeaway and impact will be on readers around the world. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Enrique Sala, Nat Geo's explorer in residence, founder of Pristine Seas, and author of upcoming book, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild. Dr. Sala, welcome to the show. Hello, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. So great to have you here. Uh, Doctor, I want to start with a little bit about yourself because there's, there's so many ways we can nitpick this hour conversation. There's a lot of things I want to dive into, but one of the things that interested me most is on Nat Geo's website, and it's about your background. So it says, Dr. Salah is an academic turned activist, tired of writing the obituary of the oceans. He joined forces with Nat Geo and founded Pristine Seeds. So if we actually dive into that first segment, mm-hmm. tired of writing the obituary of the oceans, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I'm a recovering academic. So I used to be a professor at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in, in La Jolla. It's part of the University of California. It's a wonderful place. I was studying the impacts of humans in the ocean, the impacts of fishing, global warming. And one day I realized that I was like the doctor telling you how you're going to die with excruciating detail, but not offering a cure. I found myself writing, rewriting the obituary of ocean life with more and more data, more and more precision. And I thought, wow, this is not very fulfilling. This is on the verge of the depressing. This is not why I became a diver and studied marine ecology. So I decided to quit academia and dedicate my life to actually help with uh, the cure, help to bring back the richness and the productivity of the ocean. And before we dive into Nat Geo and your work with Pristine Seas, I'd love to rewind just a bit further to establish context. You don't hear many people working in this category of research and industry at all, but more specifically, you've spent a lifetime researching, studying, and now working explicitly on the problems that are related to planet health and the health of humanity. So if we actually rewind to your early days, how did you get your start in this field of work? It was because of TV. And I grew up on the Mediterranean coast of uh, Spain, and I was watching the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau every Sunday evening. (laughs) I was glued to the TV. That's in the 70s. And we had two TV channels in Spain. That was it. And there was only one man who showed us the underwater world, and that was the French explorer and inventor Jacques Cousteau. So I was absolutely fascinated. Other kids are fascinated by soccer or by music or by whatever. And I was totally fascinated by what I saw. I was so hooked since I was a a little boy. 
and I started swimming with masks and, and snorkel on the Mediterranean shores, and, and that was the very beginning. Wow. Clearly, um, you've really spent a lot of time understanding how these two really broad forces, right, the health of the planet is tightly intertwined with the health of humanity. So when you joined Nat Geo, you founded Pristine Seas. Can you just unpack what exactly that company organization is and what is the focus of your work there? Yeah, after I left the scripts, I went back to Catalonia for a year. I was working at the National Council for Scientific Research there. And it was wonderful because I didn't have to teach. I didn't have students. I didn't have responsibilities other than conducting research, which gave me a lot of time to think. And I came up with this idea. So why don't we go to the wildest places in the ocean and conduct scientific research so we know what the ocean used to be like? Because people say, oh, we need to bring back the ocean. Yeah, but bring back to what? Right? And most of the science that we have in textbooks was coming from areas that are degraded, places that are easy to get to, uh, places that are close to people, and places that have been fished for decades, if not centuries. So our view of what the natural ocean was biased. And I thought there are still a few places out there, remote, habitat, that are probably near pristine. So why don't we go to these places, conduct scientific research, film them, and try to save them before it's too late? And that's how Pristine Seas came about. So in January 2008, I went to the National Geographic Society, and I had a meeting with the executives there. I made them a presentation and in their infinite wisdom, they liked the idea. <laughs> and I moved to DC in July 2008, and we've been working on Pristine Seas since, since then. Wow. All right. So a lot of these questions are a build up to a broader question that I'd been thinking about before having this conversation today, which is how the health of the planet and maybe the oceans more specifically rate, relate to the health of humanity. So broadly speaking, mm-hmm. can you help connect the dots for the listener? How are those two things related to each other? Okay, there is a very clear example that I think everybody will understand. It's called COVID-19. Okay. COVID-19 has stopped the world on its tracks. People have been at lockdown in some countries for months. People have died. People, hundreds of thousands of people have died. Millions of people have got sick. Tens of millions of people lost their jobs. Countries are suffering economic downturns. And this is because one virus spilled over from a wild animal to a person in China. And thanks to our globalized lifestyle, where we move around like crazy, this uh, virus creates an outbreak, which then spread like wildfire around the world. So it is our trading wildlife, our encroaching upon intact habitats like forests that put us in touch with these viruses. Our immune system is not prepared for and causing absolute global disruption with one of the worst economic crises in, in history. So there you go. You have people tampering with nature in one side of the world uh, with global consequences affecting every single human, starting with our own personal health. I think this uh, pandemic has been the loudest wake-up call, the strongest example of how our health our well-being depends on the health of the natural world. And if we continue cutting forests and doing illegal mining and, and forestry in these wild areas, we are only going to get in touch with more and more viruses. 
there are trillions of different types of viruses out there. We don't know how many are harmful, but it's going to cost the world probably in the order of $9 trillion to have to respond to just one of them. So this is, I think, the, the, the biggest, the, the best example of how our health depends on the health of the natural world. That resonates so much with me. If you think about the different things that have impact on individual behavior change, I think that the number one characteristic of behavior change is when either A, you're personally affected by something, or you can relate, right? Maybe it's a family member or friend that's exposed to it. And as such, you're incited to change a behavior to prevent such thing from happening again. And I think one of the core maybe miscalculations from a messaging perspective around climate is it's really hard for people to resonate with an issue or be called to action when there's things like, hey, by the year 2050, X, Y, Z is going to happen or Mm -hmm. in 10 years, this is going to happen or we're seeing this in some disparate part of the world. And I think what you bring up is compelling because the unique characteristic of COVID is that every single person on the planet was affected by it in some way. And is there not any more compelling way to say, hey, if we do not start treating nature and the planet where we live the way it should be treated, we're just going to get another pandemic of this nature that affects every one of us. What, what do you think about that? Is this the type of messaging that we should be leading with to really compel behavior change on an individual level? Absolutely. You, you are absolutely right that most people thought climate change, ah, this is something that's going to happen to someone else in the future, not to me now. And it's crazy because surveys in the US showed this disconnection. People thought, yes, most people thought, Oh, climate change, yes, is going to affect humanity and, and, and the planet. This is something serious. But then most of them thought that they, it was not going to affect them, which is crazy. It, it's the, the craziest form of denial. Okay, so something is going to affect the planet, but not me. So, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's one of these irrationalities of human nature. But you are absolutely right. However, I am a little concerned because we can already see people going back to normal here in the United States. You have all these young people going to bars and beaches without masks and getting together. In Spain, there was a a discotheque open. 400 people got in there. 91 got the coronavirus. I mean, what will it take for everybody to understand that this is not a game? To understand that we are not the masters of the universe, but we should be humble and understand, acknowledge that we are just one part of a complex system called the biosphere, the living layer on the planet. And that the richest person in the world today depends on the health of the poorest person in the poorest country. Because it only takes one person to be infected for the virus in our globalized world to spread everywhere. So I would hope that people would realize that this can happen again and that we don't need more examples for people to understand that our behavior, what we did before, was absolutely unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Now people say, oh, we have to go back to normal. I say, no, that's the worst thing we could do. We cannot go back to where we were before because mm-hmm. the pandemic not only has shown the dangers of our broken relationship with nature, but also it has unveiled all these qualities and all the, it has shown us very clearly that the foundations of our social and economic system, especially in countries like the US, were very shaky, that the emperor had no clothes and that we cannot go back to that same system. We need to build back better. Mm -hmm. I want to bring up a phenomenon that you've dubbed or talked about either in the book or in the past, but it's this notion of a butterfly effect. And you might have touched on it with the ripple effect with that one person, but can you just unpack what that notion is 
Yes. So the butterfly effect is a butterfly moves her wings in one part of the world, and that will have a series of cascade effects that will eventually result in a storm in the other side of the world. And this is not an exaggeration. This is a beautiful and effective metaphor, I believe, for what's happened, what happens in our world. We all live connected. We are 9 million species of plants and animals. A trillion different types of microbes, mostly bacteria. And then probably 10 trillion different types of viruses. And we are one of those species. One. Um, we are all interconnected and interdependent. Everything we need to survive depends on the work of other species. The oxygen that we breathe in the atmosphere is the result of processes of photosynthesis done by plants, but mostly by microscopic plants and bacteria in the ocean. And who would care about very small bacteria in the ocean? Most people don't even know that there are bacteria in the ocean, yet they are our saviors because they are the ones who produce most of the oxygen in the atmosphere. Who protects us from floods or filters the water naturally? Intact forests. Who pollinates our crops? Wild beasts. So we do need all these species. And they all do this work that benefits us for free. Most people don't know, don't care, and take it for granted. And we cannot replace these services that nature provides uh, to us for free. And what we know is that the more species we have there, the more biodiversity, the more complex and intact these ecosystems, the more benefits humanity gets. <clears throat> and if we move, if we remove one species from the system, you know, we are at risk of something serious happening. You remove sharks from coral reefs, and that's the first step in a series of cascade effects that are going to degrade that coral reef. You remove wolves from the land, and that's the first step in a series of effects that is going to um, degrade that ecosystem. We need every species there. We don't know what most species do, but they all have a role. They all have a work to do. It's, imagine the city of New York, mm-hmm. where you are. There are hundreds of different jobs right, in New York, from the pizza guy to garbage pickers, doctors, teachers, and even can, uh, dog hairdressers. Okay, if you remove the dog hairdresser job from New York, which is that job is it's a role that that people that those people have in society is like the role of a species in in the ecosystem. If you remove the the dog hairdressers from New York, the city will continue functioning just well. A few people in the Upper East Side might be upset, but the city will continue working. Now you remove two other roles in in New York. You remove the garbage pickers and the doctors. Mm-hmm. There's going to be disease. There's going to be chaos. It's going to be a, a disaster, right? Uh, so we don't know what more species do, but we cannot remove them. And I love, if I may show one clear example mm-hmm. about the butterfly effect. The Amazon forest. What happens in the Amazon forest affects the entire world, no matter where you live. So the Amazon forest produces its own rain. Because the trees absorb the water through the roots. The tropical heat brings the water to the leaves and makes much of this water evaporate. So you have this water vapor going in the atmosphere. And when it reaches a certain height, it cools down and it falls as rain. When that rain falls, it creates low pressure that brings more moist air from the Atlantic Ocean, which means more rain and so on and so forth. This rain then erodes the mountains, the Andes mountains, and all those nutrients, all those minerals that are washed by the rain go down in the Amazon River, end up in the Atlantic, and fertilize the waters of the Atlantic, which helps to fuel fisheries in West Africa, for example. And some of those microscopic creatures in the ocean that uh, use those minerals from the Andes will die and sink at the bottom of the ocean and over millions of years will become sandstone that then will 
become at some point part of a desert. So everything is connected. Now, if we cut 20% of the forest in the Amazon that is left, if we lose 20% of that forest, there is going to be not enough forest mass for the Amazon to produce its own rain. So the forest will turn into a savanna, which means no more nutrients going into the Amazon River at that scale, fertilizing the waters of the Atlantic and helping to feed the people in West Africa. So you remove 20% of the forest in the Amazon and the consequences will spread globally. And let's not talk about the weather patterns, which would be totally disrupted. Mm-hmm. So this is how, this is just, I think, a powerful example of how everything is connected and that if we touch one thing here, the consequences are going to be global. That example really shows how tightly connected, totally disparate parts of the world and ecosystems are highly dependent on the existence of each other. But I think in order for us to ensure that continues, it's important to define who the offenders in the destruction of the world are. And you bring up this notion of cutting down trees. If we were to outline or define who the key perpetrators are that are instituting or igniting these problems outright, is there a select few that you think the world should be focused on? If we define who those great offenders are, who are they? Okay, so I love your podcast because you are focusing on on solutions, real solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you said that you don't want people to believe that there is no hope. And I, I really want to get to the solutions. But to answer your question, everybody is a perpetrator. From citizens to companies to governments in different ways. Of course, the absolute contribution of a person to the destruction of nature is small, compared to the contribution of fossil fuel companies, for example. And we all consume resources. We all pollute. But there are things that we can do to fix this crisis. And people could talk about the nature crisis and the biodiversity crisis and the health crisis. It's all the same. It's all related. Mm -hmm. The pandemic, again, I think it's a great example. The COVID-19 pandemic, the ultimate cause is wildlife trade and previous infectious diseases that came from animals like HIV, Ebola, SARS, MERS, H1N1 come from destroying natural habitats or by raising livestock in atrocious conditions. So it's our broken relationship with nature that is the cause of these infectious zoonotic diseases. But the big perpetrators are just a few, really. One is the main culprit for climate change, which is fossil fuels, burning fossil fuels. This is warming the planet, uh, warming the ocean, increasing the acidity of the ocean, melting the polar caps, and all the disaster consequences that we are already experiencing, like extreme weather events, for example. Two is overexploitation of the planet. The planet has resources that are renewable, but we are taking out more resources than the earth is able to replenish in a single year. Mm -hmm. So we are basically eating the principle of our investment account. We are not just happy with the returns, which should be plenty, but we are also eating away the principle. And three, the the third big one is pollution in forms that we can see, like plastic pollution, and forms that we cannot see, like mercury in the air or heavy metal in in water. So I think these are the three big things. Fossil fuels as the main cause of, the cause of man-made climate change, over-exploitation of nature, which is a culprit of the destruction, the loss of nature, the loss of biodiversity, and then then pollution. And then these three... (coughs) And these three act in synergy. They act together, right? They are mm-hmm. they have compounding effects. And the good thing is that there are solutions for the three of them. Mm-hmm. 
thanks for breaking this kind of really large problem set into the focus areas. And I think you're right. It's important to define the problems, but more importantly, it's important to give people hope about the future, to outline some of the solutions to these problems. And it's what we've been proud to focus on over the last year plus. And you have this book coming out and you tweeted, which I I really love, you dubbed it as a love letter to the planet. (laughs) So what I'd love to understand in the nature of nature, why we need the wild, who is this book for? And what is the key purpose of this love letter? The Nature of Nature is a book for everybody who cares about living in a planet with clean air, clean water, living in a place where your kids are not going to get sick just because they are playing outside, planet where there will be wild places that we will be able to enjoy uh, forever. In other words, for everyone who would love to live on a planet that is plentiful and self-replenishing instead of a planet that is being more and more degraded because of human greed. And I wrote it because I had all these ideas in my mind. For the last 30 years, I've been conducting scientific research. I learned from all these uh, mentors and masters, and I found many things about how nature works. When you think about 9 million species of plants and animals and trillions of microbes working together, interacting, and and it just works. Before we started screwing up with the planet big time, especially after the first industrial revolution, the world was a predictable place. There were seasons that were predictable. Once in a while, you had the odd extreme weather event, but usually it was a pretty stable place. And how could that happen? How did all these species working together help to make the planet such a wonderful place, including the weather? How could, you know, ecosystems like forest and the ocean life help to drive the weather, which was thought to be a physical thing completely independent from nature. So I had all these ideas in my mind for 30 years and I, I, they just wanted to get out. This is why I thought of the nature of nature. And the book basically, how can the species interact? What happens when you put two species together that compete for the same food? What happens when you add a predator? What happens when you put one ecosystem next to each other? And the book is a, a collection of stories of how these questions were answered by ecologists, by scientists. Some of people who are dead, some people who I know and I have had the privilege to work with, and some of my own stories. But then I also wanted to answer other questions like, okay, how much is this going to cost? Many people say we cannot afford protection of nature. We need to develop, uh, grow our economy. And I wanted to make the economic case to show that the global economy, it will be better if we protect a 30% of the planet than if we don't. I also wanted to make the moral case because mm-hmm. in all these species, you know, it doesn't matter if you are religious and you believe that the biosphere is God's creation, or maybe you are you know, atheist uh, scientist who believes that this is just biology and, and chemistry. Or even some physicists believe that the universe is a computer simulation. Yeah, there are a bunch of physicists who actually are <laughs> writing about this theory. Yes. And <laughs> it doesn't matter what you believe. Because the these species, they all have a right to exist. They are not our slaves. They haven't been put here or they haven't arisen on, on this planet just to provide for humans. So they have an intrinsic uh, right to exist. And that was the book. But then COVID happened. The book was ready to go to the printer. And I asked Uh my editor if we could stop it for a a while. And she said, okay, you have two weeks. So I was able to write the last chapter, an epilogue on the nature of coronavirus. Because that allowed me to make the link between the health of nature and, and the health of humans. 
So this is the book. So this is the, what the book is about. What, how nature works and how wonderful it is. And, and it's like a miracle. And the stories are unbelievable how people discovered that you reintroduce wolves to Yellowstone National Park and the entire ecosystem comes back. Okay, and, so uh, Dr. Saad, this is so compelling to me because I think a great analogy here is if anyone has read Malcolm Gladwell's work, and excuse me if, if you don't think this is a fair comparison, but I think the thing that resonates most with Gladwell's work is his ability to connect two seemingly totally unrelated things together and support it with science and storytelling. And it's why books like Blink and Tipping Point and The Outsiders have been really impactful on on myself and I know many others. And what I see here is a really similar storytelling approach. And sometimes it takes this type of really compelling storytelling, connecting seemingly unrelated dots to get people to have their own eureka moments. One of the talking points that I just, I don't understand, but I would love to hear you break down is how does garbage and the Andaman Sea affect a family in Minnesota? Like, I don't know if, if this is in the book or something you've discussed before, but I, I have it written down here as a question. How are two, those two dots connected? First, I hope I'll sell as many books as Gladwell does. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, the Andaman Sea is this, this sea south of India. And actually, that's not in the book, but that's a great uh, example of this crazy question of how... You know, how can this be connected? But as you said before, everything is, is connected and there is this butterfly effect. And so the Andaman Sea... Okay, this is a good one. I have never <laughs> been asked this one before. How is garbage in one side of the world, in the ocean, affect somebody living in Minnesota, you said? or Yes. In Minnesota, okay. <clears throat> so this plastic that is uh, generated in China or Indonesia ends up on a river and ends up in the Indian Ocean. And that plastic breaks down because of the effect of waves and the sun into smaller and smaller particles, which then become what we call microplastics, uh, plastic fibers or fragments of plastic that are microscopic. The little organisms in the sea, uh, this little shrimp-like uh, plankton, they will eat them thinking that they are little algae. And then the sardines will eat this plankton. And then the tuna will eat the sardines. So imagine that these little fish, <clears throat> imagine these little fish will eat these little shrimp that have plastic. So they will accumulate plastic in their bodies. And maybe they will poop the, the plastic, but though that plastic in the ocean actually acts as a surface where bacteria and potentially pathogens and toxins uh, absorb. So the higher you go up in the food chain, the more toxins animals accumulate. So think at the top of that food chain, you have the big tuna. The big tuna that has been eating thousands and thousands of sardines which in turn have been eating hundreds of thousands of little shrimp. So the tuna will accumulate all the, tox all the toxins that were around that plastic in the middle of the Indian Ocean. That tuna is going to be sent to, is going to be caught by, I know, a, a, a Thai fishing boat or a Chinese fishing boat is going to be then frozen and sent to China for processing and is going to be sold in the United States, maybe as canned tuna, maybe as as a, what's going to be called or sold as fresh tuna, but is frozen and thawed tuna. So that person in Minnesota, in one steak of tuna, is going to be eating a good chunk of pollutants that uh, originated uh, in the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. So there you go. So that's how 
<laughs> trash in the middle of the Andaman Sea would affect someone in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> that is absurd. Okay, so one of the things that I found compelling about the nature of nature, like you said, is it, it really is designed and written for today. You even stopped printing to add an epilogue that is representative of the world we live in right now. And one of the, I think, glass half full parts of the narrative today is how we saw these beautiful landscapes that have been covered by smog and pollution, right, over the last few years, Mm -hmm. now come to life again. Because I think Mm -hmm. some would say there's been reduced emissions worldwide, I think research suggests that is true. But I guess my question for you here is, is there hope in that reality? What lessons can we learn from how COVID has affected emissions on a broader scale? For a couple of months, for a couple of months, it seemed that 2020 was going to be the year where global carbon emissions was going to go down. And it still seems that's the case, but I read that China is back to pre-COVID emissions. So that goes back to our question from before. How many more pandemics we need to realize that you know, we cannot go back to our unsustainable way of life? So there's going to be probably, hopefully, a reduction in emissions that exacerbate climate change. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, the changes that we saw during the the pandemic probably are going to be short-lived because countries and people are going to go are going to try to go back to normal as soon as possible but i think that the biggest lesson from the pandemic is what we have seen the recovery of nature not only the cleaning up of the atmosphere so quickly but also animals coming closer to cities whales and dolphins coming into marinas i think the nature is sending us a very strong signal which says, look, what can I do? Look how fast I can recover if you just give me some space. That's really compelling. I want to segue into practical recommendations because I think at a high level, that really does resonate. I remember seeing this really fascinating and funny comic of i don't know if it was in the new york post or i'm I'm blinking on where it was published but it was effectively a family of stick figures humans stuck inside while a group of deers looks at them through the window and it's look at us like you guys are stuck inside nature is coming to life and it was a really profound illustration of the state of affairs, but more broadly, it's, it's a reminder. So looking forward, right, over the next 10, 20 years, where should we be focusing our attention? It is complicated, but at the same time, it's very simple. And there are three big things we can do to deal with those three main issues that we discussed before. So first, we need to phase off fossil fuels. That's the only solution for climate change. We need to phase off fossil fuels and shift to a renewable energy economy. That's feasible. Uh, it's been shown that uh, renewable, in some countries, renewable energies are already producing more electricity than, than fossil fuels. So that would have consequences, uh, positive impacts for, for the entire planet and also the economy and would help create millions of jobs. Number two. We need to change the way we produce food. Right now, we are taking too many fish out of the ocean faster than they can reproduce. So we need to reduce the fishing effort and to to give ocean life some, some space so it can replenish, so we can continue fishing sustainably. And on the land, currently, the way we produce food is unsustainable, it has a huge footprint, it's dependent on chemicals and toxins 
that help to destroy the soil and create dead zones downstream in the ocean. Um, we are using too much land to produce too much meat. The world consumes too much meat in the United States, for example. 41% of the land of the United States is dedicated to raise livestock. 41% of the land is dedicated to cows. And Americans eat too much meat. Our body, the human body, cannot process all that protein. And much of the protein is, is washed away with people's pee. Yet all the proteins we need, all the micronutrients, all the calories from plants. So shifting to a plant-based diet would help not only our health, but also the planet because livestock is one of the main producers of uh, greenhouse gases, mostly methane, mm -hmm. which is 20 times, 25 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas than, than carbon dioxide, than CO2 is. But also shifting to an agriculture that is regenerative, that doesn't mm -hmm. depend on all these chemicals and fertilizers would provide a better food, healthier food, but also would help to continue building soil instead of washing it away. And soil can absorb huge amounts of the CO2 that we throw in the atmosphere. So that would help also with climate change. So that's number two, change the way we produce food. And the third one is give more space to nature. Today, only 15% of the land and 7% of the ocean are in areas that are protected in some level. The science is telling us that we need half of the planet in natural state. If we want to prevent the extinction of a million species and the collapse of our life support system, if we are to achieve the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, we need half of the planet in natural state, and we can start now to agree, to commit, to protect 30% of the planet by 2030, at least 30%. So these are the three things. They are big. They are not uh, something that can be done in a week, but they are very clear. They are relatively simple. And all we need right now is the political will because the money, the economics, the economics are there. The economics are not a problem. But right now, it is political leadership what the world needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, part of me, when I hear these two things, and I've, we've had a bunch of founders on the show that are, are actually taking on those problems specifically. We've had ChargePoint on, right? Enabling like worldwide electric vehicle infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And we had Pachama and people that are looking to restore or working on regenerative agriculture and, and actually the lobbying local governments and state governments to incentivize farmers to transition their practices from what you said, destructive to regenerative. But I think the third one is the most challenging because there is no technological or economic breakthrough that enables space. Applying space constraints is policy. The only way we can achieve that solution is our political leaders, like you said, saying, we, stop, we can't tear down 50 more acres to put up a, another housing development. Mm -hmm. So my question for you is twofold, because I, I know it's really complicated, but I'm, I think it's, it'd be helpful to try to simplify, because I think we have two uh, confounding uh, forces one, we have a rapidly growing world population that in many ways necessitates the need for increased housing and more units to living. Mm -hmm. But to your point, we also, if, if we keep developing at the rate we are, <laughs> it won't matter. <laughs> we will have a planet to live in. So how do you suggest we satisfy those two kind of confounding forces yeah that's a a question that every president or minister of finance is going to ask and the solution i think is very clear 
if we don't waste all that land to produce meat that is produced in excess, we will have much more land to provide for equitable housing for people, but also more land to give back to nature. And when it comes to the economics, <coughs> when it comes to the economics, many people will think we cannot afford protection of nature, but we released an economic report this year that shows that protecting 30% of the planet would cost, on average, $140 billion per year. Wow. $140 billion. Okay. Some people will say, wow, that's a lot of money. Let me give you a comparison. Today, the world spends more in video games than what it would cost to protect a third of the planet. Wow. Governments spend three times more. The governments spend $500 billion every year of taxpayers' money to subsidize industries that destroy nature, that destroy our life support system. The money is there. We just use it for the wrong things. And not only the cost would be lower than what we're using to destroy nature, but also it would, they would come with huge benefits. So for every dollar that we invest in protected areas, nature gives us $5 in return. In the United States, for every dollar that the government invests in our national parks, that generates $10 in economic output that goes to local businesses and local people. Economics are telling us, it's very, the economics are very clear. The global economic output of the planet would be much larger if we protected a third of it than under the business as usual, where we're going to see diminishing returns and if we keep eating away the principle. That super resonates. What I want to do, Enrique, is I want to transition to a set of questions that are tangentially related to the topics we've discussed, but just a, a bit deeper exploration of how you think about opportunities to bring some of these solutions to life, other projects that you're fascinated in. And one of the ongoing questions in my slate of interviews is just getting your take on some of the more fascinating startups and moonshot projects that you're seeing these founders pursue. Mm -hmm. We had Lilium on who's working on electric aviation. And the thing that really strikes me most about that opportunity is the courage. It's the courage to say for the next 10 years, we're not going to be able to bring anything to market. We're going to have to take a 10-year risk, hmm. right? Invest 10 years of my life with the hope that we can introduce something to the world that solves some of these fossil fuel problems that you discuss, but also can be sustainable. And it's things like this that really inspire me to hmm. highlight what they're working on, introduce these ideas into the world. And so what I'd love to do is just hear your take. Are there any projects that you discovered recently over the next, over the last year, two years, whatever it is, that have really just fascinated you, either for their courage or for them being moonshot in nature? Are there any that you said, wow, like you're rooting for them from afar? Yeah, this is something that is rare. <clears throat> People showing patience to get greater benefits in the future is like the marshmallow test. We are very good at discounting the future and just eating the marshmallow right now, even if we could get <laughs> two if we just waited a day, right? Uh -huh. Or an hour. And there are a few examples, but there are a few that uh, I think are worth mentioning. One is uh, polymateria, 
my friend Neil Dunn in, in London and his team at Polymateria, they had been they have spent years developing alternatives to plastic that have the same benefits of plastic, but that they are completely de- degradable. That takes investment, that takes patience, that takes time. Aquaspark, my friends Mike Vellings and Amy Novogratz in the Netherlands, who decided that they were going to invest in small to medium scale aquaculture, fish farming projects, funding the entire ecosystem from feed to the technology, to the actual farms and and markets and distribution to build aquaculture that is sustainable really into the future. And they thought that they were going to have to wait seven years before they saw economic profit. Another example, the third example I like to use is those fishermen who, like those in Mexico in a place called Cabo Pulmo, where they were so upset with not having enough fish to catch that they asked the Mexican government to create a no-take area, a, a national park in the ocean, 70 square kilometers where there is no fishing. And it took them five to six years to see the results. But after the fish came back, then the divers came in and they are making far more money now from diving tourism inside the reserve than they did before uh, trying to uh, catch the few fish left. So these are three three examples, two commercial and one which became commercial, but is a more a local community deciding that they don't, what they're seeing, they don't like their trends. And instead of continuing down into the, this spiral of self-destruction, they decided to set aside part of their fishing grounds. They decided to build that principle that now has grown with compound interest and, and producing returns that they will be able to enjoy for as long as there are fish in the water. Wow. All of the above are super interesting. Another question I had for you, and it's a recurring one on the show, is this notion of an idea graveyard. Right? It sounds like you, know, you and I are like, we're thinking constantly and we're thinking of, we're, we're, we're problem solve, solver oriented, meaning... We see something and we say, huh, that could probably be solved by doing X, Y, Z. And for me, I have this really long note on my iPhone that just lists all these wanky ideas. And most of the time, (laughs) I wake up the following day saying, oh, that was a terrible idea. But sometimes I'm like, huh, that would be really compelling. That's a that, That could be a good idea. I just don't have the time to go after it. So my question for you is to the extent you feel comfortable, what are one of these ideas that you would love to go after if you had the time or the capital, but they're just rotting away in your idea graveyard? Elizabeth Gilbert wrote this beautiful book, Big Magic. She has this theory that ideas are not something that you come up with, but ideas are out there and the ideas are looking for people to implement them. And when you are ready and you really dedicate and commit to that idea, then you can do it. Otherwise, I don't think they go into this graveyard, but the ideas will go somewhere else and they will find somebody who will implement them. So I I love what uh, Elizabeth wrote. And Uh that's something that troubled me. I Like you, I had a list when I was in academia (laughs) of ideas of research papers I wanted to write. But then when I left... uh, academia when I left Scripps, you know, I was found with all these papers, like a good academic, I had so much paper on my desk and on my lab, there were papers everywhere. So I decided, okay, there are all these ideas, there are all these papers that I started writing and I never finished, or you know, and data that I started collecting and I haven't even started analyzing. What am I going to take with me? I could spend the next two years, doing nothing but implementing all those ideas that are very nascent. And I decided that, okay, I'm going to look at the top paper on every pile. If I, if I have not touched the top paper, if I, haven't, I, if I haven't done anything to implement that idea in the last year, the entire pile goes to the trash. <laughs> it, doesn't ma- it doesn't matter. I don't care what's underneath. If uh-huh. I haven't touched a thing in one year, it means that it was not important to me. Uh-huh. And I got rid of 
everything except one paper that I ended up publishing a year later, but I ended up with everything and it was actually liberating. And people ask me, why don't you work on plastics? Plastics are so important. Why don't you work on climate change? I said, listen, remember when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, right? He was ousted by the board and then he came back after a few years Mm -hmm. and there were like 12 or 14 product lines. And he said, okay, we're going to have only four. Well, but Steve, all these, most of them are profitable. So no, we're going to do only four product lines. And what happened to Apple, right? Mm -hmm. It became the most valuable company on the planet. It's the focus that is the most important thing and focusing on the essentials. So this is, this is what I did when I left uh, academia. And this is what I do now when people ask, what about plastics? There are people working on plastics and I hope that they are successful. What about climate change? Oh man, there are wonderful, brilliant people. There are so many thousands of scientists and governments working on it. I hope they are successful. And it is the focus that has given us success with Pristine Seas. The fact that we've been able to help to create 22 of the largest marine reserves on the planet is the focus that we have had this laser focus on one goal that is measurable, that is tangible. All these ideas, I don't even bother to write them anymore because um, no, I don't have the time. I am doing something that I love, that I'm passionate about, that is working. So unless I found an idea that really is going to make me leave everything else, I hope that idea will, will find somebody else who will not have found that focus and will be able to implement it. That doesn't answer your question of what are my ideas on my graveyard, but <laughs> I, the truth is that I forgot because um, I didn't leave them on a graveyard. I actually let them free so they can find somebody else. I love it. You're inspiring me to just click the big old trash button on that note. In my book. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, doctor, my final question for you And it's just to circle back on this book that is coming out in a few weeks. I'm a buyer, right? And I'm looking at all the different books that are coming out and I see the nature of nature. If you could say or condense a single takeaway that you hope a reader has after exploring nature to nature cover to cover, or in other words, the impact that you hope this book has on the world, what do you hope that is? Everybody has a different, everybody will have a different interpretation or different feelings when when reading a book. But for me, after writing the book, to me it was a reminder, and I hope that many people will have the same feeling, is that, wow, our biosphere is such a wonderful place. It, it's, it's a miracle. It is a true miracle. The way that all these species interact to make Earth a livable planet, it's the most wonderful thing in the universe. We need to keep it as it is. You know, we cannot tamper with our life support system. We need to bring back the wild to Earth. The earth cannot become an urban planet. The earth has to continue to be a place full of wild places where all these species can thrive. So we also can thrive. Doctor, I just wanted to say thank you again for the work you're doing, for dedicating really your whole career to introducing people to what feels like a very complicated area, but an important one, but then distilling it, more importantly, distilling it down into, uh, at least in, in the context of nature, nature, storytelling that every single person can understand and relate to. And I just want to say thank you Thank you for coming on the show, for giving us your time. And to everyone, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild is hitting shelves August 25th. Put it in your calendar. I can't wait to grab my own copy. So, Doctor, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. 
Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.